All right, everybody. Today it's episode one of Derek's discussions. And today, so this is the rundown for Derek's discussions. First, we're going to talk to a little bit about this person and talk about life just in general, how they're doing, how was COVID, how are they personally. And then the second part of this, uh, Derek's, Derek's discussions is going to be just about sports. We're going to discuss all different types of sports. We're going to go over the five major sports. Sometimes we'll talk about all five and sometimes we'll talk about all three. So that's kind of the rundown of Derek's discussions. And uh, we're going to get ready. It's going to be an exciting time on Derek's discussions. And uh, my first guest is going to be from New Canaan, Connecticut. He goes to Syracuse University. So we'll uh, stop by with him. All right, and welcome our guest, first episode, first season. It's Ian Nicholas from Syracuse University, and I uh, grew up in New Canaan, Connecticut. So, Ian, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Derek. I'm just preparing to call a game for the Amsterdam Mohawks, who are having an awesome start to their season, a little summer baseball action, looking to improve in between my uh, semesters at Syracuse. So I'm having a great summer. And then, so how was, obviously, your, your – uh, at Syracuse at the Newhouse School, which is one of the top broadcasting programs in the nation. But how was your first uh, year of college? Oh, it was awesome. I mean, you know, Syracuse is unlike any other program in the country. But as a whole, I had a great experience as a first year college student. I never really been far away from home and I'm an only child. So, you know, it was a big step for me in college. It was really great. Newhouse, they've got phenomenal professors and classes, but the extracurricular activities uh, at Syracuse University that I'm able to partake in as a student uh, from radio stations to TV stations are unbelievable. And you are really taught up and really coached up, I should say, the right way uh, in sports broadcasting by the upperclassmen there who look to continue the standard that Syracuse is set as the best uh, you know, college for sports broadcasting in the nation. But I love being at a big school where sports are so important and, you know, the camaraderie of being an orange is so great. So it was an awesome first year. And then so I hadn't worn this shirt since like since I was like applying to schools and I I got the Syracuse dress dress shirt. I love it. I love it. I actually don't have a Syracuse button down, but I've got plenty of other merch. I really only wear this red polo nowadays with the Mohawks logo, but I'll have my orange and blue back on in the fall. And then, so what was your decision like going to Syracuse? Obviously, like going to Syracuse, knowing like it's a top program for sports broadcasting. And obviously you're doing sports broadcasting, as we can see for the Mohawks. So like, what was that decision like? And like how, like how exciting was it for uh, to go to Syracuse? Oh, it was great. I mean, I really think I found my passion for sports broadcasting at a young age, just like you and everybody else uh, nowadays who really has found that it's a real career path. I'd say it was probably back in freshman year of high school when I realized that this is what I wanted to do. So once I figured that out, once I kind of told that to my parents and I had gotten involved with my high school TV station, as well as a sports broadcasting camp over the summer, we started looking online at some of the top colleges in the nation. And it was pretty clear early on that Newhouse was not only the top communication school in the land, but also the top sports broadcasting school in the country. And, you know, my parents who are not broadcasters in any way, they're both in the hospitality business, in the hotel business. They told me, you know, this is the Harvard of broadcasting. Why wouldn't you want to go? And I'm so happy that they kind of 
steered me in that direction and said, if you can get into Newhouse, and we think you can because of a resume you're starting to put together at a young age and New Canaan High School, you should go. So, you know, I wanted to keep my options open at the same time and look at other places. Arizona State's got a great program, Northwestern, Indiana, even Virginia Tech's an up-and-coming program led by a former Syracuse broadcaster and Bill Roth. And they actually kind of recruited me a little bit, which was kind of fun because they're kind of like a newer program. And it felt good as, you know, a young broadcaster to get recruited. I'm an awful athlete. So it felt good to get treated out well, right? I mean, I quit football after sophomore year because I wasn't great and I wanted to go on the broadcasting full time. So when it came down to it, you know, I really like Virginia Tech, but senior year, first semester of high school, I told myself, if I get into Syracuse, I'm going to go. So I ED'd there and I committed EA to Virginia Tech. And those are the only two schools that I applied to. And I never even heard back from Virginia Tech. I was pretty sure I was going to get in there. I know it's kind of crazy. And I got into Syracuse CD. So it was a big weight lifted off my shoulders. It was mid-December when I heard the news. You know, everybody started to get their letters, ED coming in. I was concerned. And then a Friday night, just got the email, went upstairs to grab my laptop, came downstairs, plopped in between my parents, and I got in. And that's how the story goes. And here we are. That's crazy to see like how you like only applied to two schools and, you yeah. know, and you know, like you got don't recommend in. that to anybody. <laughs> yeah. I apply like I personally, like I applied to like multiple different schools and like, for me, I was like, like Syracuse was obviously like number one, like on, I feel like it's on like everybody's list as like number one, but you know, things happen for a reason. I didn't get in and you know, that, that is what it is, but you know, I'm at Marist college, which is a newer, smaller school and it's like up and coming I think but I think Mm -hmm. like there's obviously like transition in that but like and it was cool to see how like you mentioned like high school year like first freshman year of high school is where you really start to find passion for it and at least for me like I knew I wanted to do like sports broadcasting in second grade honestly I started muting the television and just like doing games like just by myself but I think it really started to come into gear like freshman year like in high school just like just like yourself but what would you say is like your biggest motivation like what is your why what is my why that's a great question um I think just being there for the big moment and getting to cover the big moment at a sporting event the feeling of doing that He's second to none. And also, uh, you know, these athletes, they work so hard at any level, whether it was a New Canaan High School, Syracuse University, or here at Summer Ball with the Mohawks. All of these guys and girls, they work so hard. And I think my job is to kind of tell their stories a little bit and, you know, make those moments that they have when all that hard work and preparation comes to fruition and they make a big play. I want to be there to make the moment a little bit better with a great call. So I think that's a big motivation for me is I love sports. It's, you know, I'll watch any sport anytime. I love talking to my friends about sports when I'm not watching sports. It is my life. I knew I wasn't going to be playing it. I knew I wouldn't be coaching it because, you know, I wasn't going to play in college or anything. So then I realized what's next. And when I found out there was a TV program at the high school, uh, I took full advantage of that. And, you know, sophomore year, freshman semester, you know, sophomore year, first semester, I should say, I was calling football games as a color commentator and I loved it. And then I got to call, you know, basketball play by play in the back end of my sophomore year. And we had an awesome shot. It was like a sports center shot. A kid made a buzzer beater from half court and won the game against one of our big rivals. 
And, uh, you know, I'll never forget that game in January of 2019 because that was like the moment where I was like, that was an unbelievable moment. I loved being there for that moment and kind of documenting it. And now I know that I kind of got to quit football and do this full time. Just being there for that, that big moment, helping those athletes any way I can, telling their stories and telling the audience just how great they are. That's why I do it every day. And then how would you say COVID impacted you like, uh, like as a person, like first, and then talk about like how COVID impacted you from like a broadcasting standpoint. Cause I feel like definitely that is a huge, uh, huge part of like sports broadcasting, like COVID kind of changed a lot of different things. A hundred percent. It happened in the middle of my junior year. Uh, that's when the pandemic really took off, unfortunately. And you know, our high school television station, which had gone, you know, grown, grown accustomed to, you know, live streaming every sporting event and doing weekly announcements every Friday with news, sports and weather, you know, it, it didn't come to a standstill. Actually, we were able to, you know, continue to do our work remotely. Now, obviously, there was no um, sporting events to cover, but we were able to put together remote 20 minute broadcast every week with, you know, sports reports highlighting, you know, the spring athletes that would have played as well as recognition from, you know, athletes uh, that were NCHS alumni and just continuing to do work during those first few months of COVID in the back end of my junior year, we were still really productive. And then um, that fall of 2020 was when, honestly, NCTV, you know, got its most broadcasting experience of all time. And we were just live streaming every single event because, you know, people couldn't get into the games. So our broadcast kind of became the, um, you know, the only way that the parents and relatives could watch these games. And my voice was heard from a lot more people uh, due to COVID-19. So obviously a pandemic is never a good thing. But I was able to get a lot more exposure in my local areas, got a lot more uh, listeners in on my work and got a lot of recognition from that time because we as a program stepped up. And when there were restrictions for, you know, if people could come or not, we were able to provide, you know, good coverage. And COVID was tough for sure. It made our jobs a lot harder because we were relied upon to be that voice and to be that video feed for everybody, you know, in Fairfield County watching a new Canaan game. And then what got you into uh, like uh, sports broadcasting? Like what, what is your, like what got you into sports broadcasting and what would you say is like the biggest impact in your life? I would say, you know, similar to how you described it when in second grade, you would just call a game to yourself and mute the TV, you know, that's everybody's story. But for me, the big reason I got into sports and my two favorites growing up and still are football and basketball it's through video games. Like legitimately, I love playing Madden NFL and I love playing NBA 2K. And as an only child, I'd be sitting in my basement for hours on end playing the games by myself and like talking to myself while I was doing it. You know, everybody watches YouTube Let's Plays and I would kind of like imitate those guys. And while I was playing the game against the computer, I would find myself broadcasting the game. And that's what I was doing was calling the play by play of Madden and of NBA 2K. And then, you know, when I was watching a Giants game with my dad, because we always watch New York Giants games together, again, in, in the middle of the game, I would find myself starting to call the game. And he would look at me and say, Shh, I want to hear the professionals. And again, that was another mot motivation of like, well, I want to be that professional. This is what I want to do. But again, NCTV 78 at New Canaan High School, such an awesome program. I know few kids have something like it at a public high school where you could step right in 
see the kids go on air every Friday, see them put together these live streams multiple times a week. And you can then see yourself in that rule down the line if you put in the hard work. So I had that in place. I was able to walk in there, prove to everybody how much I cared about sports broadcasting and how much detail to uh, attention, I guess, I put into my work. And I rose up the ladder quickly. And by senior year, I was the station manager calling multiple games a week and you know going on to sports report every other week. And it also helped that I had a couple of really close friends. One, his name is Dylan. He's a sophomore at Arizona State. And another guy, Austin, who's a freshman at Indiana, who are also really passionate about sports broadcasting. And us three, we did our best work in high school to kind of elevate the sports broadcasting aspects of NCTV 78. So I thank those guys who continued to push me to be better and helped build the sports program. And I thank my instructor, Roman Sobolski, through the TV broadcasting elective. He continued to push me to do more and more and gave me an opportunity that few high schoolers have. So, you know, I tell other kids try to create their own opportunity and try to do podcasting and try to call games on the radio, do whatever they can. But for me, I was super fortunate that I had that program in place that was so well funded. Yeah, and I think that's like one thing like compared like from my experience, like you had like all that experience, like for me, it was more like I was like more by myself and like it was more difficult to like find people that were interested in it. Cause like, obviously you mentioned like you had names, like some of your buddies or whatever were like also into sports, like sports broadcasting. And for me, it was kind of just basically like myself. That was kind of like the main like person. So like when there was a game, like I would be doing it, but the problem was there weren't a lot of people that wanted to like be a part of it. And I think COVID like for me, like helped that because like more people like wanted to be like sight, like see the game. So like they would do like camera work and like stuff like that. And I feel like that was definitely beneficial, but like, obviously like as a sports broadcaster, like how do you watch like a normal game of sports? Like you're not broadcasting the game. You're just sitting there and watching it. Like what, what's your, what's your mindset? It's funny because um, I'm roommates now with a pitcher from Union uh, who's from my area of the country. And, you know, we were watching one of the College World Series games in our host family's uh, bedroom. And he was like, call the game right now. You won't. And, you know, he like kind of dare. He's like, can you call the game right now if you wanted to? And, I, you know, I, I did like literally one out of a baseball game. And he's like, wow, that was pretty good. I'm like, thanks. Whenever I watch a game, I'm always thinking of, you know, maybe how I would call the game. Or if I'm not, I'm listening to the commentary and trying to see that was a great call or that was a great nugget or that's an awesome verb or adjective. I should maybe try to use that moving forward. So, yeah, I definitely watch a game a little differently if I'm alone compared to if I'm with friends, like if I'm in a social setting. I'm not going to be saying that was like, you know, I'm not going to be that geek for sports broadcasting. I'm going to enjoy the game and talk about the game with my friends. But if I'm watching a Yankees game or a basketball game alone in my room, you know, I've had multiple times where my father walks in and he's like, what are you doing? Talking to yourself. I'm like, you're, you're exactly right. I'm calling the game right now. So yeah, I'm always thinking about it and I'm always trying to just get those mental reps in whenever I can. And yeah, just try to appreciate the great commentators who are out there because there's so many great ones. And I really don't dislike many commentators. I like the different styles, the different pacing, the different storytelling aspects that each guy or girl brings to the booth. So, and also how people play off each other in the booth. So I'm always trying to pay attention to, you know, the commentary. But I was able to be a producer my first year at Syracuse uh, on a show called On the Bench, the longest running sports show in the nation for the college level, at least. 
And through that, now I also look at the production value because there's commentary, which is one thing. But as a commentator, when you go up and up and up the ranks, you've got to be more aware of graphic packages and B-roll and all these little things that go into making a broadcast what it is. And at the end of the day, you know, if you know what everybody is doing around you and how that teamwork plays into the broadcast, it's going to be a better broadcast and a better call if you have a greater appreciation for your producers and everybody else working around you trying to make a great product. And then who would you say, like, your favorite broadcaster is? Like, obviously, you might be a little bit biased, like, going to Syracuse, like, knowing, like, all of the, like, alumni and stuff like that. But who, who would you say your favorite broadcaster is? Yeah, no, I mean, honestly, there are so many great broadcasters who haven't gone to Syracuse. I know it kind of might not feel like that, but I love Mike Breen. Mike Breen didn't go to Syracuse. He's the, you know, Knicks announcer. He's unbelievable. And he just finished up another awesome run with the finals. I think you could really tell, like, the first few games of the finals he missed because he he was in the COVID-19 protocols. And, uh, you know, Mark Jones is a great commentator for ESPN, but Mike Breen is that guy. And... I think you saw the difference when he came back. It was like everything was back to normal. So I love Mike Breen. Uh, I love Kevin Harlan, another guy who didn't go to Syracuse. The energy and the words that he uses, he's great on the radio, but I just love listening to him on TV because, again, he makes the great moments great. I mean, people who aren't even like fans of sports commentary love Kevin Harlan. And then there are obviously Syracuse guys who are unbelievable. And, you know, Mike Tirico definitely stands out there as NBC Sports' face of the franchise. He's so smooth, and he just knows what he's doing at all times. But I love Ian Eagle as well, another Syracuse guy who I was able to meet through the Bruce Beck Sports Broadcasting Camp. Just a really great guy, and he's in the know. It's like he comes with references to social media and, you know, things that a middle-aged guy shouldn't know, honestly. He's just such a funny dude. But he's also so smooth and he nails the big call. So those are just a few of my guys who I really appreciate and I love listening to them whenever they're on the call. Yeah. And I think like at least for me, like growing up, like mine's a little bit different because like obviously like the Syracuse guys, like Mike Tirico, uh Mike Tirico and Ian Eagle, like top guys that I would watch. But like my yeah. guy was uh Brent Musburger from Northwestern. Mm-hmm. I love I like I could watch just any game. Um I'm a big college football guy. So like I would always watch Brent Musburger and then obviously uh Kirk Herbstreit is probably my favorite my yeah. favorite uh college football guy. So like knowing that, like obviously everybody has their favorites, but I feel like you learn more from your favorites than you would from like uh, quote unquote, particular broadcaster just watching and sitting back. You know, a hundred percent. I mean, different guys have different styles. You know, whenever I listen to Mike Breen, I, he's just always in control of a broadcast. And when he does his NBA coverage for ESPN, he's usually with two different guys, or at least for the finals, he's with Jeff Van Gundy and Mark Jackson. And it's so hard to operate a three-man booth. So whenever I listen to him, I kind of see how he balances that out and how he lets those two guys take over when they need to take over. And then they have such great chemistry. They know when to stop talking and let him come back into the fold when something big is about to happen. And then, you know, when I watch a guy like Ian Eagle, he's just so creative and on the fly. You can tell that he doesn't think about the big call before the big call, but he's so smart and he's so funny that he knows every time how to get it right. 
So I totally agree. Your favorites do teach you different things. And, you know, I know a lot of people who keep like a little running list of words to use during broadcast that they pick up through, you know, watching these guys time in and time again. So I agree. You're only going to get better if you get reps and if you, you know, see what the greats are doing. And the combination of that, you're already going to be on a great way. And then, like, obviously, at least for me, like, in high school, I had to do more broadcasts, like, by myself. Yeah. So, like, talk to me a little bit about, like, how you uh, how you do a broadcast, like, whether it be with someone versus, like, by yourself. Like, what is, what is your, like, prep, how is your preparation different? I wouldn't say the preparation is super different, but I'd say during the game it's extremely different. Like, preparation-wise – Maybe you want to have a little bit more to fill the air with because, as you mentioned, there's going to be so much dead space without a color commentator, without a second voice to bounce off of. So, yeah, you want to be able to be well-versed with both teams, not just the team that you might be, quote, calling the game for, and be able to fall upon facts and stats and storylines with both teams. This summer, I'm calling games alone for the Mohawks, which has been a challenge especially when we have a video feed because for road games, we just do radio and I have to talk about what's going on so much. It is never really a problem of there's nobody next to me. In fact, I think it's easier when you don't have somebody next to you doing the radio because you don't have to worry about somebody, you know, cutting in when something big happens and you need to describe it for, you know, when you have video, however, it is tough to do it solo. And I think that's when your personality really gets to shine and you get to be yourself because, you know, you have to be able maybe not to provide analysis on the game, but you can you can, you know, voice your opinion now that you're serving kind of both the play by play and the color role. And at the same time, you're at, you know, more liberties to take over and have some fun with it. Crack a few jokes, take a few swings and misses, uh, you know, and, you know, try to be funny and engage with the audience instead of just saying, oh, there's ball one. That's a touchdown. He went down on three pitches. You know, you don't have to be just this cookie cutter version of yourself if you have a video feed and you're the only person calling the game. It gives you a little bit more freedom to do your thing, if that makes sense. So, yeah, I wouldn't say the preparation is super different. I think you should be just as prepared for a game with multiple commentators as you should be with no commentators next to you. But um, I think it really puts you in more of a hosting role the more commentators you have next to you. When you're just one person, you, you know, you're telling the story of the game. But when you have multiple people, you're almost hosting a big conversation between everybody. And you've got to make sure that you, as the host, as the lead commentator, can kind of get the best out of everybody around you and make sure that everybody is getting engaged with the conversation that's at hand. It's more difficult the more people you have in that booth. But at the same time, it feels a lot longer and slower if it's just one person there. And then what is one thing like that you want people to know about you that don't necessarily know like who you are? That's a great question. I've never been asked that before. Um, I don't know. I mean, honestly, I feel like I'm a pretty open book. I post about a lot of what I'm doing on social media and try to, you know, just get exposure and just try to get myself out there. Uh, but honestly, something that people don't know about me, I don't know. I'm a black belt in Taekwondo. Uh, I got it in third grade though. So I don't think it's very legitimate, uh, cause I don't remember any of it, but honestly, just, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm a, I'm a guy who loves to engage with athletes and loves to, you know, not be like intruding on anybody, but I just love talking sports and I love talking about the business and I love 
what I do. So I'm super passionate about it. And I'm more than just a baseball broadcaster or a football broadcaster. I'm just a lover of the big moment in general. So, yeah, I'm a, a rising sophomore at Syracuse who hopes to do a lot of big things at SU with a couple of really close friends of mine. And, you know, from New Canaan, Connecticut, uh, you know, as a senior class president of New Canaan High School. And it was awesome being in New Canaan because people always appreciated my work. And I really just I love where I'm from and I love where I'm at right now in the Amsterdam Mohawks. And, you know, if anybody wants to watch a little summer baseball for a team that's got 12 wins through 13 games, Watch the Mohawks on Facebook Live. But uh, in all seriousness, I'm an open book. Please reach out to me on social media and please keep up with what I'm doing. And hopefully, you know, good things will happen to me in the future if I keep working hard. And it seems like that will definitely happen for you as well. But you know, thanks for having me on. And, uh, you know, yeah, I got nothing else to say really about myself. I, I feel like I'm a pretty open book there. And then how have sports like affected you as a person? Like obviously from like a broadcaster's mindset, it's it's completely different. Yeah, I mean, sports has shaped who I am and how I, you know, kind of go about every conversation I've ever had. Uh, football really changed my life, and I was not a great football player as a lineman, but, you know, the reason that I'm a sports broadcaster is because of the sport of football. Football is my favorite sport, and that's where I found myself commentating it for the first time, whether it was through Madden or watching the game with my dad every weekend in the fall. Or even it's like commentating the game on the sidelines with my buddies on the football team who also didn't play. Like, I started playing youth football in sixth grade, and I did not live in the same town that I played youth football in, but I love my teammates so much that my parents moved towns, and we moved to New Canaan starting in eighth grade because of how much I love football and how much I love my friends who I played football with. So that's how much my life changed. My whole family literally picked up where they were living because I enjoyed playing youth football that much. And I continued that in high school. And, you know, I played for a couple of years and it was such a tough decision to stop playing football after two years and to pursue broadcasting full time. Because although I knew that I was a bit more of a natural when it came to broadcasting than I ever was with football, it was still really tough to kind of leave that part of my life behind me. And those relationships with my friends Warren is strong because, you know, I wasn't seeing them every day anymore playing football. So it was a tough decision. And, you know, football will always hold a special place in my heart. As for basketball, which is another sport I love, I love going to the Y anytime I can and playing pickup. I mean, I don't call games when I'm at the YMCA playing pickup with, you know, 30 and 30, 40 year old guys and my friends. But, uh, you know, I just love being around sports. I love playing sports recreationally, you know, staying involved, working out. And, um, you know, my whole life is really based around, you know, how my teams are doing and uh, how my teams are doing that I'm covering uh, are succeeding. So, yeah, the sports that I cover mean everything to me. All right. So moving on to part two, let's just talk sports in ge general. This is my favorite part of Derek's discussions. Um, like you mentioned, like football, like was your sport. So obviously, like you mentioned the New York football giants. So like, what made you, uh, like, what are your thoughts on the draft number one? And like, why did you become like a giants fan? Well, to start, I'll take the second part of that question with why I became a giants fan. My parents really don't know much about sports at all. They love listening to me just cause it's me on the mic, but they really do not have interest in sports whatsoever. But my dad, I guess, was like a Fairweather Giants fan, like very like, you know, if he had to say what his favorite team was, it would be the Giants. So 
that's the team that I picked. Like, honestly, that's why I picked the Giants. And I've been a fan ever since, like, 2013. Um, you know, I didn't get to watch them win the Super Bowls. I wasn't a fan then. So, really, I've, I've been through some awful times with the New York Giants. They have made the playoffs once since I've been a fan. And they got blown out by the Packers in the first round. So, it's been tough. But, you know, I always find a way to get optimistic at the beginning of every single season, regardless of the personnel on the roster. And uh, this year, I don't know if they'll be very good in the win-loss column, but I love the direction the team is going in. I think the hires of Joe Shane and Brian Dable from Buffalo were exactly what this team needed. I think they hired the best candidate at each spot, or at least close to the best candidate at each spot. And in the draft, they crushed the first two picks, in my mind. This team needs to be built in the trenches. The pass rush has been so-so over the last couple of years, and they got the most talented pass rusher maybe outside of Aiden Hutchinson in this entire draft, a guy who could have been a number one overall pick maybe if he stayed healthy in his final year at Oregon, and Kayvon Thibodeau. And then they got a much-needed bookend to pair with Andrew Thomas and Evan Neal, who many people had as their most physically gifted and most polished tackle in the draft heading out of Alabama. So I think they crushed those two picks and then the rest of the draft they spent, you know, building depth, you know, in the receiver room with Wandale Robinson. They grabbed a really good lineman out of UNC who I like on the offensive side of a ball, a couple of nice linebackers as well. I think they, you know, had an A plus draft, honestly, maybe not that good, but those first two picks are going to be what's going to make or break this draft class when we look back at it in four or five years. And I think both guys are day one starters with Pro Bowl potential in a couple of years. So I think the Giants are in the right direction thanks to the draft back in April. I think definitely with the first two picks, uh, it, it both slam dunks. And then I think I think the later rounds are like, okay, I, I think yeah. the reach. I think the reach for Robinson in the second round, was, I think it was a little bit of a reach, but I think – when they looked at it, they wanted speed and they look at, you know, Tyreek Hill might be one of the best receivers in the game and like he's fast. So pair, uh, pair another speedy receiver with Tony, uh, like you mentioned, I love the guard out of North Carolina as well. Um, mm -hmm. but what are your thoughts on Daniel Jones? Cause throughout like the giants period of time, um, one of my buddies is a huge, huge Daniel Jones guy. I'm like, so, so on, on Daniel Jones, but I feel like, Daniel Jones is the most crucial part of the New York Giants. So what are your thoughts on him? Oh, yeah. I mean, if he takes a leap into a Pro Bowl caliber starter, a top 15 starter, this team could be, you know, a 500 team or better. And if he plays like he has over the last two seasons, then this team will be picking in the top 10 once again. So quarterback is obviously the most valuable position in all of sports for a reason. And it all starts and stops with Jones. I love his physical abilities and everybody who you talk to with him, you know, he's got the arm. He's got the straight line speed. He can run the read option real well. He can get out of trouble here and there. He, and he's pretty accurate from time to time. And I think his decision-making got better last year. I think over the first quarter of the year, he was really good. Like he, over the first few games of the year, showed you a little bit of what he could be. But, you know, as the injury started to come down and the play calling continued to fail him and the offensive line continued to put him in awful spots, it was an uphill battle for him. So right now, I think he is a top 25 quarterback for sure. I think he's closer to 20 than he is to 25. And I think he's still got potential to be the Giants long term answer. But this is this is his year. I mean, if he has another so so year, it's done. There's a reason they didn't pick up that 50 year option. 
There's no reason why they should have. It's way too much money for a guy who has an awful record through three years as a starter in a so-so touchdown interception ratio. So I think he still has some problems with turning the ball over. I don't think they're as bad as they were at the beginning of his career. I'd say I'm more of a Jones supporter than I am a Jones hater. I want to see him succeed. But at the same time, Bryce Young and other guys in that 2023 draft class, it's a great draft class for quarterback. So if he's not close to top 10 this year, I say you move on from him. And there's no reason why you give him a big contract next year. What I would, what I think you're right on target with pretty much everything you said. <laughs> but I think the one thing is with Jones is let's say he's a top 15 quarterback. Like, let's yeah. say he does well. The Giants do, like, all right, 500. I think you give him a short-term contract, like a three-, four-year deal, something like that, because there's a particular guy, like my buddies at home know, I love Arch Manning. I think that might be the quarterback. Yeah. That might be the quarterback where I just say, okay, let's give Jones three or four years. I know he's going to be a solid starting quarterback, but he's not going to be elite and wait till draft Arch Manning. What are your thoughts on that? I think that's really tough because this giant regime is going about it in the right way where they realize they're not going to have a solution quickly. Like this is not going to be a playoff team most likely in the fall. And they know that and they're building it around that they're getting rid of guys who are talented, but they're taking up too much money. They're freeing up cap space for the future and they're bringing in young guys who they can mold and develop and hopefully be the cornerstones of this franchise. But I think they hope that by year two or year three, they're really good. They believe in Brian Dable to get the job on the offensive side of the ball, to get the job done. They believe in Wink Martindale to build up that defense and to send pressure at any quarterback that comes and plays at MetLife Stadium or on the road. So I think that they're expecting a lot out of this new regime by year two or year three. And although Arch Manning is super talented and he's going to crush it over his three-year collegiate career, I think that's a little too far in the future to legitimately bank on because we see how quickly things change in the NFL. After one year, we thought Joe Judge was a coach of the year caliber guy and was going to bring this team to success. And we all found out that maybe he was more talk and less walk, if you get what I'm saying. So, you know, things change quickly. And although the Giants are going to be patient with this new group, they need to produce by year two or year three. So although I love them to do a full tank job like you're kind of alluding to and, and go in on Arch Manning whenever they can in a few years, they can't really afford that. They're the New York Giants. People care too much. The fans care too much. And they're going to get roasted if they have three or four awful years in a row. And Brian Dable and Joe Shane are going to be out of the job. So if they don't get the job done and it's another new regime who drafts Arch Manning, great. But I hope this one works, and I'm really banking on if Daniel Jones isn't the guy this year, then you go and you draft Bryce Love or you draft one of the other top quarterbacks in 2023, and I think that's a game plan. I don't think you can think that far in the future because this is a win-now business at the end of the day. You've got to produce results as quickly as you can. See, my thinking behind the Arch Manning thing is I think – Jones will do well. I think he'll be a solid starting quarterback. But I think at one point when you're talking about some of these rookies that they're drafting now, their contracts are going to be up and other guys' contracts are going to be up. So you're kind of at going to be at a standstill of the New York Giants don't have any long-term contracts. They just have the rookies that they just drafted this year. So I think you plan that out. And then let's say you give Daniel Jones a four-year contract. 
The Giants do okay this year. Let's just say a little less than 500. The next year, 500. The third year, they start to really do well. And then the fourth year, you're like, oh, crap, because there's cap. There's a cap in the NFL. You can't afford everybody, so I wouldn't be surprised if they trade someone who has value for a first-round pick but still be successful, but that first-round pick that they traded for is in that top first round where they where they are able to draft Arch Manning or if they trade up, they draft Arch Manning. That was my process thinking about this, not thinking that the Giants are going to be god-awful for the next three or four years. Yep. Because obviously, if that's what's going to happen, Joe Shane's going to be out, Brian Dayball is going to be out, and I, yep. I believe in Joe Shane. I do Dayball, too. Dayball is one guy where I like him, but I'm not in love with him. And I think at least from my like opinion, I think that might be the, that might be the way to go. What are your thoughts? So I totally agree with you. You're alluding to the fact that it's easier to build a roster around a rookie quarterback because, you know, you're going to pay a quarterback, a good quarterback, 40 to $45 million nowadays, which is unbelievable. You know, I'm old enough to remember when they were paying them 20, 25 million. That was a lot of money, but uh, that's the NFL for you. So I totally understand how building a team around a rookie quarterback is the way to go, because then if he's good enough by year one or year two, to really be a top 15 guy, then you can attract the free agents, make the big trades and build around him. But sometimes, you know, I think you can go the other way. I love what the Rams do. And I know that they're like kind of a one of one, but look at them. I mean, they, they have Matt Stafford, who's on a huge deal. They have Jared Goff, who was on a huge deal, but he wasn't good enough. And they kind of are like, well, who cares about the draft picks? We're going to just try to bring in as many good quality players as we can and win now. And at the same time, we're going to develop guys as well, like Aaron Donald and our entire offensive line and Cam Akers and so on and so on and Cooper Cup. So, you know, I'm not saying the Giants do that at all and just blow over draft picks and try to go all in right now. But um, I don't know. We'll see how it goes. As for Dable, I do agree that I have a little more confidence in Shane than I do in Dable because, you know, with Joe Shane, you look at him as one of the architects of an unbelievable roster that the Buffalo Bills have. Arguably the best roster in all of football on both offense and defense. And they nailed the draft pick, uh, you know, in Josh Allen. But with Dable, you don't really know how responsible he was for the development of Josh Allen. But I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt and say that he was a massive part in developing this inaccurate gunslinger out of Wyoming into an MVP front runner. So I hope he can do the same for Daniel Jones or the next guy who comes in. Yeah, I completely agree. All right, so we just talked about the New York football giants. We're going to move it over to uh, the NBA basketball, college basketball, NBA kind of basketball just in general. So obviously like being at Syracuse, you're a big Syracuse college basketball guy. So like, what's your just opinion on, um, on basketball, college basketball first, and then we'll talk NBA. Oh, it's a different animal. And I honestly had never been to a college basketball game before I went to Syracuse. So I'm kind of happy because the experience in what is now the JMA wireless dome used to be called the carrier dome is unreal. Uh, you know, it's interesting because there are probably like a couple thousand more people who show up to a football game and a basketball game. But since like the way it's structured, obviously basketball is played on a turf field. So they have to 
put the uh, you know the hardwood down and put it in a third of the stadium, it is a packed third of the stadium. I mean, the energy that you will find in the Carrier Dome is unlike anything I think you will find in college basketball across the country because it's just it's played in a football stadium and it feels like it. Like it's just like the ground is shaking. You can't hear yourself think, and it's unreal. And uh, unfortunately, I came to Syracuse at literally the worst time in our athletics history. Our football team was awful, and then our basketball team was under 500 for the first time in Jim Beheim's like 40-plus years as the head coach. Regardless, it was a great year, and, uh, you know, it's just like unbelievable who you'd see in that stadium on a weekly basis. Like for one game, Giannis Antetokounmpo was there. And, you know, watching a game against Wake Forest. The next day, Pete Davidson was there watching a game courtside. And I know that doesn't really mean a lot in the whole grand scheme of things, but it's just so cool because it's more than just basketball. It's a community and it's an event, it's entertainment, and it's what a lot of people care about most in the central New York area. And, uh, you know, for Syracuse, it's interesting because – you know, last year's roster, they had Buddy Beheim, who obviously, you know, came on the national radar in 2021 when he, you know, drove Syracuse to a Sweet 16 run. And he was, you know, just chucking unbelievable shots from downtown. And he was, you know, almost that good on a nightly basis with Syracuse. But, you know, the players around him, unfortunately, couldn't really help him out a bunch, especially on defense, which is kind of funny because Syracuse has been known for its defense over the years, its patent 2-3 zone that nobody can figure out. But this year, people figured it out. They made their shots, and Syracuse didn't have enough, you know, athletic defenders to guard the paint. So, you know, they were having their way inside, and when they got inside, they were kicking it out, and they were hitting threes that were wide open. So hopefully uh, a really strong freshman class led by, I believe, four four-star recruits will be athletic enough to kind of boost that 2-3 zone and, and maybe we'll finally see Bayheim play a little bit more man defense, which he never does. So we'll see. I mean, Buddy Bayheim is gone, but we still got Joe Girard, who is the pride of Central New York, is an unbelievable talent. And Jesse Edwards, who his season ended in February due to a broken wrist, but he's one of the best centers in the ACC when he's healthy. So, yeah, I think they're going to be a solid team this year. I don't know if they will make a deep run in March Madness or anything. But I think they have the capabilities with all the freshmen coming in to make a run in the March Madness once again. And as for the whole college basketball landscape, I've never been a huge college basketball guy outside of this year. But, uh, you know, I think it was really impressive what UNC was able to put together because they were honestly not that good a team in the middle of the year, in my opinion. But, uh, you know, they picked up that win at Cameron Indoor and spoiled the end of a regular season for Coach K. And then everything kind of came together for them uh, right after the ACC tournament. With Armando Baycott coming back and the shot makers they have and Hubert Davis at the helm, this team's going to be dangerous once again. And I hope they make a deep run, even though, you know, I'm a Syracuse fan. It's easy to root for North Carolina as well. And then, like, at Syracuse, obviously you mentioned, like, having the four-star recruits and, like, a younger class. Uh, both Bayheims obviously left. So, like, Jim Bayheim might be thinking a little bit of, of retirement. Obviously, being a Syracuse uh, Syracuse student, what are your expectations for Bayheim in the next couple of years of like thinking about retirement? Obviously, there was talk that he would retire a while ago, and you know that didn't happen, and he's still there. So, what do you have any insight information on that? 
Do I do I have any inside information? Nobody knows about not even Jim Beheim knows when he's gonna retire. And he hates, he absolutely hates being asked the R question about retirement. I mean, if you're a reporter brave enough to ask that question, you know you're not going to get a definitive answer, and you know you're going to get chewed out. I had the uh, honor of helping out Citrus TV during media day, and somebody asked a question to him, and, you know, he's like, why is everybody asking me this question? I don't know, maybe because you're like almost 80 years old and by far the oldest coach in the game. It's not just a question, Jim. It's not like you're 35 anymore and it's 1960. So, um... I don't have any inside information, but I will tell you this. He came out and he spoke on a radio show for ESPN Syracuse in the middle of the season, and he claimed that there is a succession plan in place. He wouldn't give away who would be succeeding him, but he gave away that there's a succession plan, and it wouldn't come into place after this year. So, I don't know. I've also heard, you know, that he's told some of the recent recruits that he's going to be there all four years. Do I think that's going to happen? I don't. I think my my prediction is by the time I'm done with Syracuse, and I'm not going to go to grad school, I don't think, by the time I'm done, we will have completed the first full season of the non-Beheim era. I think he gives it one to two seasons. I say a max of two. And I think the successor is going to be Adrian Autry. A lot of people say, yeah, I know you're a little stunned by that. Adrian Autry is the big recruiter. I know Gary McNamara was the star player, and he's the guy who's Mr. Syracuse. But if you talk to any of these recruits, all of them say Adrian Autry is the guy. He's the guy out there getting these four stars to come to SU. So if I, I think if John Wildhack, the athletic director, was smart, and he is a smart guy. I've had the honor of interviewing him. He's a great guy. He's made a lot of great hires over the last year with women's across, men's across, and women's basketball, bringing Felicia to get Jack back home. I think he can make another slam dunk hire if he promoted Adrian Autry to head coach because I think he's a heck of a recruiter. I think it's his time. I think, I think I completely agree. I think Adrian Autry is the way to go for Syracuse instead of McNamara. I think he's a better recruiter. I think with the modern-day basketball, you got to think of, hey, this is a guy who's going to connect more with players than Gary yes. McNamara. And I also think one thing with Syracuse is they got one of the top recruits from last year. He didn't play that much. Benny no. Williams. Benny yep. Williams, there was talk when he was coming out he next Carmelo Anthony. The Syracuse basketball looks like they're on the rise. Now moving over to the NBA, Golden State Warriors just won the title again against Boston Celtics. Obviously, we're, you said earlier that you're a Knicks fan. What is it about the NBA that draws you in? And number two, what are your predictions for the Knicks? Well, um, shout out to the Warriors, first of all. I mean, they really did go through a lot. I know everybody may not love to root for them because they think they're so dominant, but they really haven't been over the last few years. They went from the worst team in the whole league with the number one pick or number two pick to, you know, champions once again with three guys who are over 30 years old as their star players. So shout out to that big three. Shout out to uh, Steve Kerr, one of the greatest coaches to ever do it. Um, as for why I love the NBA, uh, 
I just think, you know, I love watching NBA over college. I don't know why. Uh, I think college basketball might be, you know, where guys are a bit more fully committed and they don't make as many silly mistakes and, you know, the stage might be a little bigger sometimes with college basketball. But I think in the NBA, you have the best of the best going at it every night doing things that only they can do. I mean, there's only one LaMelo Ball. There is only one LeBron James. There is only one Steph Curry. These are guys you are not going to find playing in the national championship game. I'm sorry. Who's the best player in the college championship this year? Ochai Abaji and, and Armando Baycott? I mean, those are great players for the college level. But they don't, you know, they're not going to be NBA mega, mega stars, I don't think. Getting to watch those guys every night do unreal things with the basketball, whether it's through the air, with their jump shot, you know, fighting through contact, making great plays on defense, you know, whipping wild passes through people's legs and all that jazz. I think it's just an unmatched level of athleticism and talent in the NBA. And I love to see people make shots. I know a lot of people don't love this new era of basketball where it is, you know, only layups and threes. But I love watching a great shooter get hot and, you know, really take over from beyond the arc. I'm not that guy when I play pickup, but whenever I see somebody who can do anything they want with the basketball beyond the three-point line, I think it's really exciting. And as for the Knicks, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't even know how to feel about them anymore. I was just so optimistic after their surprisingly great 2021. And then, you know, I think they made a few wrong moves and they brought back a bit too many of those guys to a bit too much money and Alec Burks and Norland's Noel. I love the Rose. I think they gave him a little too much money, but I love him. And uh, I don't know where this team is at right now. I mean, I'm hearing rumors this morning that they want to bring in Kyrie Irving. I mean, I love Kyrie Irving as a player, but he is literally the the antithesis of what you want as a locker room guy. I mean, I don't think he's a bad guy. I just think he just always finds a way to make himself the center of attention. And I know these are NBA superstars. They want to be the center of attention. But his attention is never a good thing for a team. Like, when the Knicks missed out on Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, for a, a day or two, I was like depressed but then afterwards I'm like there's no way this is going to work out these two guys are crazy they're never going to work out together and I was right like I should have like made that a public statement it hasn't worked out in Brooklyn it really hasn't they forced out Kenny Atkinson they have Steve you know Nash as their first year head coach Irving can't stay healthy Durant can't stay healthy this that it hasn't worked so anyways getting back to the Knicks I hope they do well in the draft later this week I hope they can bring in a lead guard who's not Kyrie Irving, maybe a Malcolm Brogdon or a Jalen Brunson, who maybe won't break the bank, but will also give you borderline all-star caliber you know, minutes on the floor. I think R.J. Barrett is maybe not an all-NBA you know, all kind of guy, but I really love his potential. He's making his shots. He was great in the 2022 part of the year. I don't know about Julius Randle. I feel like it's time to move on, but also at the same time, I totally understand if you want to give him one more year to see if he can recapture that magic that he had in 2021. At the end of the day, the Knicks have a number two in Randall, they have a number three in Barrett, and they don't have a number one. So until they find that guy, the team is going to be treading water. I don't know where they'll find that guy. I don't think they get him in the draft unless they move up for Jaden Ivey. And unless they swing a trade for Kyrie Irving, they're not going to find that number one in the offseason. So... 
I'm so-so on Leon Rose and Tom Thibodeau as well. I'm so-so on this whole team. I don't really care anymore. Like, I've got no expectations for them. Kind of like the Giants, I've become a numb. And if they do well, great. If they don't, I kind of expect it at this point, unfortunately. Yeah, I think with Knicks right now, you need a point guard. Yeah. quickly is a decent point guard, but he's not a top caliber point guard. He's a backup point guard. Yeah. R.J. Barrett is the guy at shooting guard small forward. I think he, as he develops, he can be a number two option for NBA championship team, not a number one. Yep. Still looking for that number one uh, guy. Then Mitchell Robinson, he's a center. Do you really pay him that much money? And, I don't know. To me, he reminds me too much of DeAndre Jordan, and I'm not willing to pay that much money. Um, Donovan Mitchell is another guy that might go after, but that's not really solving any of their problems. Their problems are a point guard and score. Kyrie Irving is exactly what the Knicks are looking for, but I don't want an older guy because the Knicks are not ready to win now. Trading up for a guy like James Ivory is the option right now that I would look at if you're the New York Knicks, but you still need a guy, and I think a guy who could help the Knicks, but it's not a guy they're going to get. Could be a guy like Kawhi Leonard, but obviously Clippers, and that's not really a suitable option. At the end of the day, the Knicks get number one option. Will the Knicks get number one option? The answer is no. No. It's going to be terrible. I'm hoping that the Knicks will win an NBA make the playoffs and have serious contention to make the NBA playoffs in 10 years. They're an absolute, they're an absolute disgrace of a franchise. And they need to be a lot better than what they are right now. But that's enough of basketball. Sick and tired of talking about the Knicks. The Knicks are god off. Moving on to baseball. The New York Yankees are doing well. They're in first place. My fantasy team is 500 right now. Uh-huh. The Yankees, they're moving. What are your thoughts on the Yankees roster? Obviously, in the offseason, they got the shortstop, Isaiah Keener. Yeah. Got Josh Donaldson. Personally, I'm not a big Josh Donaldson guy, but the big piece to me, Jose Trevino. Right now, he might be a top catcher defensively. He might. I personally, I think uh, Jose Trevino is better than Higashioka. Oh, it's not. That's that's not a hot take. What are your thoughts on the New York Yankees right now? Obviously, in first place. Yeah, uh, a couple of my friends are diehard fans, and I've really, over the last year, year and a half, started to grow my fan of the Yankees and get it to a point where I'm watching every day. And uh, I love Jose Trevino just like America loves Jose Trevino. I mean, what's not to love about this guy? Comes over as a small part uh, in a Rangers trade in the offseason. Nobody knows who he is. He's a Yankees fan for life, and, you know, he gets his time in the middle of the year and not only is he absolutely great defensively, like you mentioned, but he is so clutch at the plate. I mean, he's had multiple walk-offs. He's such a timely hitter. He can hit for power. He knows when to, you know, take and work in his walks as well. I love Jose Trevino. But this offseason, on paper, didn't look good for the Yankees whatsoever. I mean, Kiner Falefa was a guy who was, you know, not great with the bat, but could play defense. He was a gold glove at third base a couple of years ago. And then Josh Donaldson looked like a guy who was washed and was not the same player who he was in the past. And 
when that, that trade was made, everybody talked about how he hated Garrett Cole, and that was like the only thing people were talking about is because of his fighter tax stuff. So, um, but now it's all working out. I mean, Donaldson hasn't been like great. But he's been good enough. His defense has been really good when he's in the lineup at third base. I know he's had some, you know, some stuff with the media, which hasn't been great. He's, you know, his, his interaction with Tim Anderson was unacceptable. Funny enough, I was at that game uh, with my friend. So that was interesting to see, you know, everybody clear. Nobody knew what happened. And then after the game, everything kind of started developing with that. So, yeah, but at the same time, I feel like you need a guy like Josh Donaldson because the Yankees were missing a backbone. And although he might not be the best guy in the world, like, he is the backbone in, of that team in some ways, like, from a personality standpoint. They needed a they needed a villain. They needed a bad guy. Like, and I feel like he brings that to that clubhouse, and he brings that, and he brings the edge back to New York in a way. Although his average might not be great, he plays good defense, and he is almost the instigator that can keep it under control, but also gives the Yankees that edge. And then Kiner Falefa... He's just, you know, he's hitting like 270, and he doesn't have a home run yet. But again, his defense has been really good. It was the improvement that the Yankees needed in the middle infield to, you know, limit the errors and to make those plays that need to be made. He's been really good. I think another big thing is Glaber Torres. Glaber Torres looks like the old Glaber Torres again offensively, and last year he was a liability. So that's another big thing. So the catching has improved massively with Trevino. The middle infield has gotten a heck of a lot better with, um, with you know, Torres' resurgence and kind of Falefa. And then this team is the Aaron Judge team now. I mean, give him so much credit. Everybody has said it. This guy, you know, got a really good offer right before the season began, but banked on himself and took his game up another level. I mean, not only is he mashing over the right porch, you know, the short porch in right field, but he's also hitting for average and hitting anything over the middle of the plate. Like, unbelievable season for Aaron Judge. Stan and LMA, you have been able to do their thing as well. They've been able to, you know, keep it up and produce how they should be producing. But this is Aaron Judge's team. On nights where he's not going one for three or two for three or three for four, the Yankees aren't, you know, aren't as successful. But I haven't even touched on this yet. They're the best rotation in baseball. I mean, Nestor Cortez is one of the best pitchers in baseball. Like if I said that a year ago, you'd say, yeah, maybe he's one of the funniest. He's not one of the best. Now he's an absolute menace. He just knows how to get out. Plain and simple. Luis Severino, back from injury, looks great. Jordan Montgomery, nobody talks about this guy. He's awesome. He just gets it done. An, an in-house product, too, of the Yankee system. And then obviously, Garrett Cole is Garrett Cole. And also, Tyone is awesome as well. But what Cortez has been able to do with his improvement and then also Severino coming back from injury and being as good as ever, rounding out that order and giving yourself an elite caliber starter every night, plus a great bullpen led by the one and only legend, Clay Holmes and Michael King. I mean, this is the best pitching staff in the MLB. It's not even close, in my opinion. And then you've got timely hitting and you've got good defense. And that's why this team is so good. Yeah, I completely agree. One thing I'd say about the star rotation and the pitching staff in general is I think the addition of Jose Trevino, Higashioka catching more games, that's huge for the pitching staff. Not yeah. having to have Gary Sanchez yeah. behind the home plate. But looking at it, I think 
Jamison Tyone right now is probably the second best pitcher on the New York Yankees. I think 100%. I think Garrett Cole is too inconsistent for me. Nasty Nesty is the guy. If it's in the wild card or game one, I'm starting Nestor Cortez without a doubt because he's so filthy. He knows how to get outs. And guess what? He can even give you length. Before five, six innings, he's given seven. He's given eight. And I tell you, that mustache, oh, my God. That mustache is amazing. And then two guys who are scrutinized amongst the Yankees, Aaron Hicks, Joey Gallo. Aaron Hicks got a long contract. He's been here for another five or six years. Well, according to his contract, and Joey Gallo, it's his last, uh, last year of his contract. He'll probably move on based on money, salary, production. They got him because he's a left-handed bat. They got him to put him in the middle of the order. And guess what? He's batting eighth or ninth. So what are your thoughts on Joey Gallo and Aaron Hicks? Uh, it's funny because all, you know, we have a group chat with my two diehard Yankees fans and we claim our guys. And my two guys are Gallo and Miguel Castro, who just blew the game yesterday against the Blue Jays. So we don't pick any of the star players. Like, we, those are off the board. Those are our guys. Um, I don't know. He's been better recently, I think. But he's still just, like, a big thing about him is how good his eye is and, like, how he can get walks. I really don't care. Like, his average is still so below 200. That and his strikeouts are just so depressing. Like he'll just go down on three or four pitches just like that, and as if that is over. So I don't know. His defense is good, which is one thing for the most part. But uh, yeah, he should not. I mean, but again, look at the options behind him. That's the one thing we don't really have is outfield depth. I mean, outside of like Stanton and Judge, who else do you have? You have you know Marwin Gonzalez, who. I love as well, but he's just not that good, uh, unfortunately. So I think Miguel he keeps getting. Miguel would be the guy. I would. I say. he came back, you know, when all the injuries happened a few weeks ago. He was hitting two seventy, two eighty, you know, getting on base, and just because you know there was no space for him, they had to bring him back down. I think you. I think he should be starting. I mean, he's a really good in the outfield too. He's a better bat right now, plain and simple, than Gonzalez, Hicks. Or Gallo. And again, I know you have to play Hicks because of the contract, but you don't really have to play Gallo, and you don't have to play Morgan Gonzalez. They should bring him back, and hopefully they can move on from Joey Gallo at the deadline. I mean, maybe. I don't know who will want him. Maybe the Rangers, and maybe we'll return it with all-star form with them. But, uh, yeah, I, I hope they find a way to get Duhar back in there because the outfield is the one questionable thing outside of Judge and Stan, obviously. But, uh, you know, that third guy has always been the question mark. I, Aaron Hicks is just frustrating. He's so inconsistent. Not even inconsistent. Like, he'll occasionally have a big hit, but there's no power really left with him. And, uh, you know, just way too many Ks. So, yeah, he doesn't even get walks anymore, which is sad, because he used to be really good at walking. But now he's kind of lost the one consistent thing about him. So, yeah, both guys are not easy to root for, and I know why. <laughs> I think uh, Aaron Hicks might be the biggest disappointment for Yankee fans since Jacoby, yeah. El- since Jacoby Ellsbury. But I love Michael King. Michael King grew up in Rochester, New York. Yeah. School and high school. Um, Bishop Hendrickson, Rhode Island. So I'm a Rhode Island type of guy. So that's my guy on the Yankees, Michael King. 
He can start. He can be in the bullpen. All different types of things. Could be the closer. All different type. I like the versatility that he puts in. He's got a great sinker. He's got a good fastball. His off-speed stuff's good. I think he's a guy who you can – he's so versatile where – you remember Nestor Cortez back back when Nestor Cortez was being a bullpen guy, being a starter, kind of like an ass yeah. kind of guy. That is Michael King, and I think I'm not saying Michael King is going to be the next Nestor Cortez. That's just not that's not what I'm talking about. But I think Michael King might be one of the most valuable pieces for the New York Yankees. Oh yeah, I mean he is an all-star caliber reliever, and again, again, he gives you length. Like he can go and he can get you six outs real easy and make it look seamless. He's got a couple of really nice pitches, and you know, I think. He's been even more valuable for this team with um, with Chapman out. And I know Chapman wasn't great at the beginning of the year, but King is the setup guy now, and Holmes is a closer. And when those two are back to back, or you get an inning or two at a King, and you get you know a couple more outs from Holmes, you're not going to do anything against those guys. Like plain and simple, they're unbelievable. And there are also other guys in this bullpen, like Wandy Peralta, who have taken a big step up as well. Uh, with all the injuries, but Michael King is one of the best relievers in baseball. I think everybody knows it just because he plays for the Yankees. And if he's not an all-star, I think it's a shame. But he's just been fantastic. And I agree with you. I think he might have some starter potential there, but not with the Yankees because they've got their five guys locked and loaded. But uh, he's really settled into his role quite nicely. And I love seeing both him and home succeed. But they've kind of come out of nowhere and been unbelievable. So good for them. And one thing is, you mentioned, like, he's not going to be in the starting rotation this year, obviously, with the top five guys right now. But Garrett Cole is going to be there next year. Severino's only got one more year after this year. So, who knows what's going to happen with Severino. Jamison Tyone is a free agent after the end of this year. Montgomery's got, I think, two more years, and then he's a free agent. But... I looked at the numbers and I was surprised. James, uh, Jordan Montgomery is already making $8 million and Tyone's making six. That's pretty funny to see that. And then obviously, Esther yeah. Cortez is the guy, the myth, the legend. He's still, I think, in arbitration. I think he's still got three or four years left. Yeah, lucky. But moving on, off of baseball, off of the New Yankees, what are your thoughts on NIL? Wow. Um, I think it's good. I think it's a good thing, honestly. Uh, I think people should be able to make money if they've earned it. And, uh, you know, I was talking about it earlier. Like, all these athletes, they work their tails off. They commit their entire lives to this sport or sports that, you know, they play and succeed in. Why shouldn't they be able to make money off of it? And I know that guys can get greedy, and it's kind of ruining maybe the integrity and the soul of college sports. But, I mean, let's be real. This has been happening for decades. It's just been happening under the rug so now it's out in the open now opportunities are you know out there for guys to become you know millionaires or at least have a solid living while in college and i think it's great because you know we see all these megastar athletes who kind of fizzle out in the pros for one reason or the next you know maybe it's because they weren't committed and maybe it's just because it didn't work out for them and their skill set didn't translate as well as we all thought it would but at least now with nil they're able to, you know, get that money and, you know, secure a good living for the 10, 15 years of work that they put in, in the high school level, the elementary and middle school level, and then in the college level. So I think, you know, if you're worth something, you should be paid what you're worth. 
And I'm happy that the men and women who dominate the college sports scene are able to have a little bit of a better living and, and make a little bit of money. Because remember, not everybody is Bryce Young. Not everyone's going to get a million dollars up front because you're the starting quarterback of the Alabama Crimson Tide. You're going to have your Jimmy Bayheim, who is, you know, the son of Jim and is going to make a little bit of money here and there because he's a solid athlete and he's also got some legacy. And you're going to have your solid college starters who aren't going to make it in the pros, who are now going to be able to represent their community, represent their school, and make a little money while doing it. I see no problem with NIL. Well, that's not true. I see problems with NIL. It's not perfect, but it's brand spanking new. It needs to be relegated, and that has to happen. But I think it's a great step in the right direction, and I'm happy for all the athletes. I see no problem with NIL long-term, and I don't know how you feel about it, but uh, I think it's good for the athletes, and they've earned this. I mean, they have earned their due. It's too long, and it finally happened. I think NIL as a whole, like the idea of NIL is good, but I think, like you mentioned, it's not perfect. There's still got to be, like, renovation, like, amongst NIL, like knowing, like, how much money someone can get, how secretive you have to be, and how you can really recruit, like, knowing that, hey, you're going to get money going to school. I mean, that's the biggest issue, but I think as a whole, NIL is a good idea because you're able to get athletes like a Bryce Young, like a, like a Zion Williamson when he was in college, like guys like that who people know and love and like they should be represented. And I was talking to one of my buddies who uh, goes to Colgate and he was like, I can now finally with NIL be able to have my own camp. He couldn't even have his name as a camp. So I think that's yeah. a good idea, like starting to head in the right direction. But I think there's uh, like stuff going on. Last topic I want to uh, briefly talk about is ESPN just signed the contract. They have lacrosse, Premier Lacrosse. Yeah. You know, on ESPN. Obviously, like I've seen you cover lacrosse before. So, like, what is what is so special about lacrosse? And like, tell me a little bit more about lacrosse. I'm not as familiar with lacrosse as other sports. Oh, 100 percent. Um, I'll be real with you. I couldn't have cared less about lacrosse ahead of my junior senior year. Of high school and i'm from a part of the country in fairfield county connecticut where lacrosse is the number two sport i mean it's football and then it's lacrosse and our men's and women's lacrosse teams at new canaan high school were great i mean the women just won back-to-back county championships and they just won a state title and the guys team is always producing high-level players who go on to play in the acc and in the id league and dominate i love calling lacrosse i'm honestly i it's my third favorite sport to call outside of football and basketball. It moves so quickly. The skill level is so high. The shot making difficulty is unreal. And, you know, I mean, just watching these guys flick their wrists, guys and girls, and, you know, thread the needle into the top left, right corner of the net or the bottom of the net, it's unbelievable. I mean, they are launching that ball at a high speed. And they do it with a crazy amount of moves. It's very similar to basketball in a way where you have spacing, you need to space out your offense, you need to work it around, get into your sets, you have cuts, you know, on the goal line, you know, near the hoop, you know, you have, you know, shake, you know, like trouble moves almost, like with your stick work, you know, check and bake, you're spinning, you're doing roll dodges. I mean, there's some unbelievable moves that these athletes can pull on to help create space get to the lane almost, I guess if you could consider it that, get to the crest, to the doorstep, 
and get a shot off that really works for them. So lacrosse is a really fun sport if you sit the time and, and learn and will learn the rules and to invest yourself in it. And uh, I was lucky enough my senior year of high school to call a ton of games for our men's and women's lacrosse teams. And that really got me interested in the sport. And then I was able to be a women's lacrosse beat reporter for Syracuse this spring. And they're one of the best programs in the nation year in and year out. And I was also lucky to cover them during a transition year where they moved on from Gary Gate, who is regarded by many as the greatest lacrosse player to ever play. Gate is now our men's lacrosse head coach at Syracuse, and they replaced him with one of the greatest women's lacrosse players to ever do it, who also went to Syracuse, and Kayla Trainer, who just won a national championship with Boston College as her associate head coach. But being able to cover her coming back to Syracuse in her first year, and to see the team make a run all the way into the quarterfinals of NCAA, which is like usually where they make it at the very minimum, and if not, they're in the final four and they're playing on championship weekend but uh, just a great group of girls who understood how to play the game the right way a lot of great shot makers and they just were so good in the big game so yeah, i love the sport of lacrosse syracuse is a lacrosse school and i can't wait to call men's and women's lacrosse games over the next three years at su and i'm thankful that i'm from a part of the country where it's already so big and i'm happy to see espn as you mentioned get those rights Paul Rabel is the face of the game. He's doing his best alongside the lacrosse world to push lacrosse to people, put it on national TV, and really let it grow. And I think you're going to see, maybe not in the next year or two, but hopefully 20 or 30 years down the line, you think of lacrosse like you think of, I don't know, hockey and baseball and basketball. Maybe not in that same level, but maybe not too far off as well. So I think lacrosse is here to stay. And, you know, it's unbelievable. The highlights, if you've ever seen them on SportsCenter, are unreal. The best moments of lacrosse are just as good as the best shot in a basketball game or the best catch or interception in a football game. Honestly, the highs that you get in a lacrosse game are unbelievable. All right. Thank you, Ian, for the first episode of Derek's discussion. I appreciate you uh, taking the time with me today. Of course. Thanks for having me on, Derek. I really appreciate you, I guess, following me in my journey in college, and I wish you nothing but the best at Marist. You know, there is no one path to success, but you are on that path right now with what you've been doing with this podcast and what you will continue to do with it. So I wish you nothing but the best, and I hope we can stay in touch down the line, and I hope to watch more episodes of Derek's discussion down the line.